So I received an email from somebody who's been listening to Secular Christ, a young person who asked me a question. How can I keep growing spiritually through the Christ image or any words of wisdom that helped you along your path of living a contemplative life? That was the question. And the question really struck home because it gets to the issue of practice, the concrete, you know, what do I do today? How do I put this thing into my life? And we did talk about secular Christian practice. It was it was somewhat sketchy, I think, in the last season. So I had I took this as an opportunity to go more deeply into the question of practice. It's been something that I've been thinking a lot about in the last years. And I think that it's it's it's, a, it's an absolutely crucial question for a contemplative Christian. I I don't think there's any contemplative life without practice. So we really have to address the issue. And I don't think all contemplative practices are the same. I think that there, is, that there are subtle differences and that the contemplative Christian practice is distinct from many other, many other spiritual practices. Although that, you know, there will be concrete similarities, you know, times that apart from meditation and so on. But the intention behind the contemplative Christian practice changes everything. So I took this as an opportunity to, to, to write at length to this, this person a sketch of, of Christian contemplative minimums. You know, the bare minimum. I'm really interested in this idea of what's the bare minimum practice? For a while, I was, uh, when I was still you know, practicing more Zen-style meditation, I, I, I tried to create the absolute minimum Zen practice. And I, I got it down to three breaths a day. So, you know, I, something about this interests me. Like, it's also the, the, with other things, with yoga or exercise. What's the absolute bare minimum that you, can, that you could introduce into your life such that there would be no possible way that you could tell yourself that you don't have time to do it? So three, breath, three breaths a day. Who doesn't have time to breathe mindfully three times a day? Three, three breaths. But they have to be mindful breaths. That is... Three breaths with concentration and deliberation. And of course, what happens is that the three breaths become three more, and you suddenly enter into that space of mindfulness, and it becomes something much, much more qualitatively richer than just counting three breaths. But this idea of minimalism, I don't want to talk about practicing three breaths today, but I want to, I want to introduce the idea of a minimalist contemplative practice which would, I think, be a secular Christian practice because it would be a practice that doesn't require that you step outside, that you lead your life, you know, your life in the world, but it's, it would be fully adapted to worldly life. So what I wrote this person is, is the following. The first question that must be addressed by a Christian contemplative is why practice? It's not obvious that we have to practice after all. We have been justified by faith and we will be saved by grace. Why do we need a practice? And this is a question that, in fact, is related to some of the responses that Paul got from those communities to whom he originally preached the gospel, who took, their, took his gospel of grace as a as license. They said, well, now I guess we can just go ahead and sin. And he said, no, that's not the issue. 
In fact, Paul, when you read him in, in a certain light, has a great deal to say about practice. In fact, mo most of what appears to be Paul's moral teaching is really Paul's teaching concerning spiritual contemplative practice. So why practice? We should not assume that all spiritual practices are similarly motivated. Christian contemplative practice has nothing to do with transcending our humanity or transforming our personalities or becoming morally worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. As we said last time, it's not self-help. All that is unbelief. Christian practice is for the sake of enjoying the gift already given, the victory already won for us, the presence of God that is everywhere and radiant all the time in nature, in culture, in our relationships, in our souls. Practice gives us clarity, peace, mindfulness, detachment from what Paul calls our lower nature. But this detachment has nothing to do with justifying ourselves or earning salvation. It has everything to do with training ourselves to enjoy the gifts of the Spirit, the patience, the kindness, the self-control, the joy that Paul speaks of. We practice not to produce grace, but in response to it. So let me just, that's what I wrote, and let me just add this this idea of practice for the sake of enjoyment. So nothing really depends upon this practice. If we don't practice, if we live a reckless, distracted life, we just muck along with the rest, Christ's victory will, have, will remain what it is. And perhaps at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, you know, we will wake up and find ourselves in the presence of the Lord that we've avoided our whole lives. And he will not judge us harshly for it. So the practice is not, it's not essential be, it, because it, it's positioning ourselves in a, to receive the grace. The grace is going to be victorious over our sin regardless. So why practice? We practice to enjoy the grace. It's, it's almost, it sounds a bit narcissistic, doesn't it? But the practice is for the sake of enjoying the grace. It's like when you're sitting in the sun and you decide that actually, no, you're not going to read a book and you're not going to talk on the phone and then you're not going to think about uh, all the things you have to do. You're just going to close your eyes, lay back and let the sun bathe you in warmth and light. It's that kind of thing. Practicing for the sake of enjoying the grace of God that is always already active in your life. Christian contemplatives, I write to the, in the same letter, are not trying to perfect themselves. The model is the Christian monk. The Christian monk. Monks are in every tradition. But there's something different about a Christian monk. The Christian monastery is not a school of self-help. It's a school of humility, of charity, where ordinary men and women learn through the discipline of daily prayer, communal life, and self-discipline, how to enjoy the grace of Christ. That is, how to see the universe as theophany. So I think we can learn, we secular Christians can learn a great deal from two millennia of Christian monasticism. And there's much that was, that was, that was developed in those 2,000 years in the monasteries that is directly applicable to our secular life. 
our secular lives. And in particular, I think there are three practices that can be fully secularized, practiced by ordinary men and women in whatever calling of life they find themselves. These are, in the Latin phrases, lexio divina, meditatio, and ora et labora. So lexio divina is spiritual reading, meditatio is meditation, ora et labora is prayer and work. So let's start with lexio, spiritual reading, lexio divina, divine reading. Lexio is reading qualitatively rather than quantitatively. So we're not trying to get through a list. Nothing is less compatible with Lexio than a list of things to read. Lexio is not the time for getting through things you feel you must read. That's study, and study is something else, and it's also important, maybe even crucial to the spiritual life, but it's not what we're talking about here. Sometimes Lexio is just a sentence, a sentence from scripture, maybe. Sometimes it's the book that you just can't put down. It's because it's inflaming your mind and it's filling you with the love of God. Sometimes it's the book that you carry with you to the coffee shop, but you actually don't read it at all. It just sits on your lap as a reminder. Traditionally, monastic lexio was scripture, but I know that many monasteries have relaxed this. The only criterion for what text will do is the witness of the spirit. So when you're practicing Lexio, you need to ask yourself this question. Where is the Spirit drawing me right now? What books are speaking to me? For me, in the last few months, it's been Shinran and St. Paul. But in other times, it was philosophy, systematic theology, maybe paleontology. My point is that the content is not nearly as important as the way that this material is read. I remember a whole season when I was a young monk in which it was Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, so a novel. No one can decide this for you. There's no objective criterion for what's right and what's wrong for you. Sometimes people would give me a book that they thought would be good for me, and I would open it up, and immediately it wouldn't work. It wouldn't touch me, and I'd put it away, maybe for years. And then, at some point, the book would literally fall off the shelf and land in my lap, and I would read it, and the book would be like a window into the divine. Everything would be coming alive for me. So it's all about timing. And incidentally, this is the reason why I still need a physical library around me. I need physical books around me so that they can actually fall off the shelf and land in my lap on occasion. Now, of course, I suppose that could happen on a computer, but for me, at least, the computer is still a little strange. You know, I grew up in the, in the 80s. So the computer is still a kind of an environment of non-contemplative kind of space for me. I can well imagine that it's totally different from my 16-year-old son who's, who has no, there is no boundary between the computer and the world. So we don't have to fetishize physical books here. But the point is that the spirit decides what should be read, not you. That said, I think we should recognize the preeminence of scripture in Lexio and in the contemplative Christian life. And if one is trying to live a contemplative Christian life and has no knowledge of Scripture, no experience of Scripture other than perhaps what one has heard in the church, I think they should crack open a copy of the New Testament. If they don't have one, they should get one. It's where we should go first. Every con contemplative Christian life 
is grounded in scripture. And, and we need to return to the Bible over and over again. And as our contemplative life deepens, the Bible becomes richer and richer. It never becomes boring or repetitive. There's no reason not to read the scriptures of other religions as well. Certainly. But we should avoid syncretism. And perhaps this is where I differ from other, other people who are speaking of reviving Christianity in a secular context. Religion, like romantic love, requires an absolute commitment to one path. And one sees this in other, other practitioners. You know, there's no ambiguity in Thich Nhat Hanh's Zen Buddhism. He's entirely 100% committed to the Buddha. He's, he's not pursuing the Buddha as a metaphor alongside others. One has to give oneself completely. And when, once one gives oneself, just as in romantic love, when you give yourself completely to your partner, when you tell your partner she or he is the only one, then they open up for you in a certain way. And the same thing happens in religion. And so the commitment to one path opens up the scripture. And the Bible opens up as a world of symbols that continues to resonate with transcendent meaning for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. So let's move on then to the next thing. So that's Lexio Divina. And it's a part, it's, for me, it's, it's essential. Uh, every morning I start Lexio Divina. That's my, you know, my cup of coffee and Lexio Divina. It's the easiest thing to introduce into your life because most people don't wake up in the morning ready to work. The next, the next practice is meditatio, meditation. And since we're not trying to perfect ourselves or raise ourselves up into some kind of divine consciousness or achieve perfect clarity and mindfulness, we, that is, we contemplative Christians, can be much more casual about this than Vedantists and Zen practitioners. But casual doesn't mean lazy. Meditatio just means a certain kind of disciplined thinking. So it might be thinking nothing, literally not thinking, as Dogen describes it. And there's certainly a crucial space for that in the contemplative life. The contemplative uh, Christian writers, the classic writers in, our, in the contemplative Christian tradition call it the prayer of quiet, when there's nothing really going on, but just it opens the open space for, for the presence of God. But it also might be thinking the thoughts that the Spirit sends us every day. It might be thinking about our lives. It might happen on a zafu or meditation cushion. Could happen walking in the park. A good subject for meditatio is any insight that comes to us from Lexio. So it's kind of a natural progression from spiritual reading or Lexio Divina to meditatio. And once again, just as in Lexio Divina, we don't have to work hard to find the the topic, but we just have to wait for it. So too in meditatio, we, 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 we just pay attention to what's coming up. And that's the subject for meditatio. The spirit takes the lead, but we cannot be lazy. We need to offer our mind to the Lord every day for a set period of time. So I think that setting aside time for meditatio is crucial. I think that's the most important point, actually. Prayer is not in our power. 
It's the spirit that prays in us. It's up to the spirit. It's not up to us. So it will happen wherever and whenever the spirit decides. But meditatio is something we need to schedule. So I've always found it strange, the idea that prayer would be scheduled. And even in the, in the monastery, you know, they would have the vespers at 5 a.m. or vespers in the, at, at 5 p.m. and lauds at 5 a.m. or something like that. And, uh, you know, this scheduling of prayer is kind of a hubris, really. What they're scheduling is meditatio, I think. So there has to be a time set aside. And for a secular Christian, this is a, this is certainly a challenge because I, we, there is not a lot of time in the day. For me, in any case, meditatio cannot be done with others. It is an essentially solitary act. And it's the main reason for protecting solitude. Now, I'm open to hearing that others, other people feel different about this, but I'm skeptical. I think that uh, I, I, I have great suspicion that uh, many of us are fleeing from ourselves and from solitude by filling our lives with talk and with others. And so creating a space for solitude, although, yes, creating a space for solitude, protecting solitude so that meditatio can happen, seems to me to be one of the things that we can all do every day. Time must be allocated for it. Otherwise, our monkey minds will race off and do other things. For me, in any case, an hour of meditatio every day is perfect. Unfortunately, I don't always have that kind of time at my disposal. So when I'm not teaching or preoccupied with writing, the mornings are perfect. You know, I'll luxuriate for in, in an hour of meditatio every day. If teaching and writing take my mornings, I don't have that luxury. For example, when I'm, on, when I'm working on a writing project, I realize that the absolute best time for me to write is the first hour of the day. And it's actually proven that the first hour of the day is the time when our, the logical side of our brain is at its most efficient. Uh, so I, I've, I've recently realized that I can't have it both ways. I can't give that hour over to meditatio and also, you know, be productively writing at that hour. They don't, they don't actually go together well. So I've had to kind of sacrifice my mornings to writing when I'm working on writing or to teaching, because it's also the case that teaching happens best, at least for me, first thing in the morning. So if teaching and writing take my mornings, I'll have to find a half an hour later, probably before dinner, Oftentimes, the late afternoon, you know, when the mind is really not working all that well in a, a logical way, most people find three o'clock in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, something sort of slows down in the brain. That could actually be an excellent time for meditatio because meditatio is not really committed to this discursive logical thinking that, that we, we do so well first thing in the morning. In any case, I'll find a half an hour, perhaps before dinner, to disappear into my study close my door, close my computer, and meditate. I might sit on the floor, half lotus, and watch my breath. Or I might pace the floor. I might sit in a chair. Breathing is crucial. Breath control is the key to concentrating the mind. That we know from Zen, but just pay attention to what happens naturally. When one is reading or writing, for example, one's breath slows down of itself. In meditation, we slow it down deliberately. A mantra can be of great help in this regard. So I've, I've been the devotee of, the, of hesychism and the practice of the Jesus prayer for at least 30 years. And I've said it so often that it just occurs spontaneously in the middle of the day. 
for me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And one can say it to the rhythm of one's breath for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, one minute. It doesn't matter. That's meditatio. And the third monastic practice, which I think can be secularized, perhaps this one of all is, is best suited even or best needed in a secular context is ora et labora, prayer and work. That's a Benedictine formula, prayer and work. You know, Benedictines were self-sufficient. And so the work, the work day included things like working on the farm or, you know, making cheese, making beer, things that, uh, things that could be sold to support the monastery. And the idea was that one, one's prayer and one's work should not be separated. So they are one. Ora et labora. They're together because they're one. They're one, they're two. They're not two, but they're not one in a certain way. It's a non-dual coincidence of the two. Because we should pray all the time, Paul says. That means we should be constantly available to the Spirit. Not that we should be always on our knees, you know, looking up to heaven but constantly available at the disposal of the Spirit, not only during Lexio and Meditatio, but especially in our work. And for most of us, what we do most of the time is work. So this is, a, this is an essential attitudinal shift that makes the secular Christian's work life qualitatively other than the work life of others. Prayer is not up to us, and if it does not come, then we must accept the silence of God. And here, work steps in as a huge help. Nothing is better for spiritual dryness or the blues than good, honest, focused work. So John of the Cross, the great Carmelite mystic of the 17th century, he used to prescribe, quote, silence and work, unquote, to novices who got stuck in the dark night of the soul. They'd come to him in confession and say, I just, my prayer is all dried up and I, I, I'm tempted to leave the monastery. I, I feel like I've made a mistake and I'm in crisis. And he would say, just be quiet and work. I think that the degradation of work is one of the great calamities in our age of technique. And countless people are denied work. And another countless majority is confined to meaningless, repetitive work. But I think that even the unemployed can find in the daily chores of their life the space for aura et labora. And I think those who are, who, who are stuck in, in minimum wage uh, service jobs, repetitive jobs, also can practice aura et labora because there is no human thriving without work. And even repetitive jobs are vehicles of prayer. So, for example, packing groceries on the shelf mindfully. This is in my mind because my son just got his first job. He's all full of excitement. He's going to be working at the local grocery store. He's going to be giving his whole weekends to the gross to 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 working in the fish at the fish counter in the grocery store. He's going to find out that it's going to be it's going to be damn hard to sacrifice his weekend weekends to to that. But even, even there, uh, this can be done in a, in a prayerful way. Or being present to the customers in the coffee shop. You know, I often think of 
how difficult it must be to stand behind the counter in Starbucks for eight hours a day, taking, asking people what they want of their coffee. And you notice when somebody does it in a pre and they're fully present to you, and, and uh, as opposed to the one who's in some kind of trance of overwork and distraction, sweeping floors, cleaning bathrooms, picking up trash, one notices the qualitative difference between the worker who's simply selling their his or her time and getting through the day as quickly as possible, and the worker who's actually working with care, even with love, and so enjoying his work as prayer. For a secular Christian, mindful work is the most important of all practices. The world will not give us much time to ourselves for meditation and reading. Work, therefore, has to be the place of presence. For those of us with the privilege of choosing our work, the situation is slightly different and we have to make decisions, but the rule remains the same. And here I'd like to quote Paul, Colossians 3, 23. Paul writes, whatever you're doing, put your whole heart into it as if you were doing it for the Lord, end quote. The context of this passage is crucial. This is one of the infamous, the infamous passage for Paul speaks about the duties of husbands and wives and children to one another. And he's also speaking about the duties of slaves to their masters and masters to their slaves. And all the progressives get upset. Paul is so hierarchical and rigid and has uh, this, uh, seems to be accepting slavery. What Paul is doing there is arguing rather that, you know, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever our duty is, this is an opportunity for us to offer our lives to God, whatever you're doing, put your whole heart into it as if you're doing it for the Lord. So when we think that Paul is writing this to slaves, because many of the early Christians were slaves, as well as to slave owners, the passage just jumps out at us as a pearl of contemplative Christian practical wisdom. Both the slave and the slave owner should do all that they do in the same spirit as if they're doing it for the Lord, and then it becomes prayer. So those of us who have the privilege of deciding what we're going to do or how we're going to work, we have, in a certain way, have an easier time for it. In another way, we have a harder time for it because we've got to make decisions. It's not being made for us. So when I'm in my hermitage on the coast, it's relatively easy. I divide the day between desk work and manual work because I find manual work, working with my hands, working outdoors, absolutely crucial for peace of mind. So I'll work at my desk in the morning, writing, studying, emailing, and outdoors with my hands in the afternoon. If I'm in the city, obviously I don't have that opportunity for manual work, but one can work in the garden or do home repairs. It seems crucial that we should get our bodies engaged in our practice in some way. And with so many of us tied to the computer and sedentary lives, I think a little attention to our, our bodies. And I don't mean simply working out, I mean engaging the world bodily in, a, in, a, in the capacity of work, I think is, is really important. So in the academic year, my work is entirely desk bound. I'll be sure to do something physical in the afternoon. I'll go to the gym, I'll do household chores, I'll do grocery shopping, I'll cook. Anything that will get me out of my mind and into my body, cooking, carefully, for example, spending an hour preparing the meal for yourself, even if it's just for yourself, can be an excellent way for people whose lives are caught up with 
the work of the mind in some way or computer work to, to, to descend from the mind back into the body. Lastly, I think, you know, some aspect of our work should be service. Now, perhaps it's the case that all work is service. In some respects, that's true. But it's also good for us, especially the, those of us who belong to the, the 1% or the 10%. I suppose I'm in the 10%. I'm not sure. I haven't shared. Uh, but I know I'm in a privileged minority of people who, who, do, who do not go hungry, who do not have to have, who have no anxiety about what they will eat or whether they'll have a roof over their heads and or whether they'll have enough money to retire. For us, it's good to be close to the poor, the weak, and the disenfranchised. You know, I was wondering where Jesus would be if he was roaming around the streets of Montreal. And, you know, he'd be on the subway. He would, de- he would be hanging out with the, with the indigenous people, drinking beer on the corner of Park in Milton. Of course, we can serve others in our ordinary workplace simply by being conscientious about whatever, whatever it is we're doing and the human needs of the other end of our work, because there's always somebody on the other end of work who needs something. So all work is service. But middle-class people are out to forget that not everyone is as lucky as they are. And so time with the homeless, the sick, the lonely, it's a gift. And it is unfortunately readily available. And that's where Jesus would be, with the schizophrenics, with the drug addicts, with the shut-ins. And so we should ask ourselves, why aren't we there? So that said, I'd like to add that work should not be overdone. And we should put strict limits on time allocated to it. And this is one of the things you'll notice in the monastery if you have an opportunity to visit one and to live as monks do that the time allocated to work is relatively short, maybe four to six hours of the day. And it's very strictly kept. That is, you know, when the work period is over, the tools are put away. We don't continue because we're obsessing on a project or because we want to get ahead or whatever. Work has to be limited because we are so apt to overwork. It's a kind of... it's, a, it's, like it's, the, it's the easiest way to deal with our anxiety over our existential situation. Precisely the anxiety which properly should bring us into the space of devoting ourselves entirely to the other power of the Christ nature. That anxiety is sort of channeled into an addictive overwork which becomes all-consuming. And so uh, the work thing is, is a delicate one. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's got to be approached carefully. So, I mean, there's more to say. And that, that was more or less where, well, there was more in the letter, but that, that's, that's the piece I wanted to share. I, I did write a little bit more in the letter about more communal kinds of, of activities, but I think I'd like to, to, to leave that for some other time. We contemplatives need communities. And we need communities for specific kinds of activities. You might know that the beginning of Christian monasticism were, was in the deserts of Egypt. When contemplative Christians fled the cities where Christianity had become bourgeois because it was now, you know, the thing to do in imperial Rome, they fled into the deserts to have a white martyrdom to restore that edge to Christianity. 
which was typical of the early years of Christianity. And so they would live up in solitude in the desert. And they got organized pretty early on because they realized that it was not good to live entirely alone. There were certain things they had to do together. What were they? Primarily, it was celebrating liturgy and having a meal together. So I think, you know, we need, we need to start building communities of contemplatives. And that's not, that's, that, that's not something I've really spoken of here, but it's, it will be the next step, the next place to go. Anyway, I want to thank the young man, I think it was the young man who wrote me and asked me for advice because it was an opportunity for me to think something through that's been on my mind for a long time. I hope it's helped others. <laughs>